0: This is Florida Frontiers, the weekly radio magazine of the Florida Historical Society, on the web at myfloridahistory.org. I'm Ben Broatmarkle, and coming up on this week's program, one of the first Florida novels ever written was forgotten and unpublished until now. We'll take a look at the book, A Trip to Florida for Health and Sport,
1: the lost 1855 novel of Cyrus Parkhurst Condit. The discovery of the manuscript was really a wonderful adventure and it was a cross-cultural adventure. Memories of catching and eating Florida oysters...
2: Through the years, our family has always gotten oysters. Usually it's a little after Christmas, when the oysters really get good, what they call fat.
0: And we'll explore the history of baseball spring training. All that ahead on Florida Frontiers. In the mid-1850s, as Frederick Delius stood on the banks of the St. John's River gathering inspiration to compose the Florida Suite, his reverie may have been interrupted by the sound of gunshots and barking dogs as the hunting party of aspiring writer Cyrus Parker's Condit came nearby. While the music of Delius would be heard within a few years, the fictionalized account of Condit's trip to Florida was forgotten and unpublished until now. A Trip to Florida for Health and Sport, the lost 1855 novel of Cyrus Parkhurst Condit, is published by the Florida Historical Society Press. An introduction and afterward by editors Morris O'Sullivan, also known as Saki, and Wenxian Zhang provide historical and literary context. Morris O'Sullivan, professor of English at Rollins
1: College, explains how this lost novel was found. The discovery of the manuscript was really a wonderful adventure and it was a cross-cultural adventure. The manuscript was written in 1855, and in 1955, Frederick Dow, who was also a major donor for the Florida Historical Society, gave the manuscript and a few others to Rollins in honor of his friend A.J. Hanna, the great Rollins and Florida historian. The manuscript was known but never noticed in the archives. And when Chan Zhang became our archivist a couple of years ago, he started looking through our collection to see what we have. Rollins is a very old archives, some claim one of the oldest archives in Florida. And among the discoveries that he made was this manuscript. About two years ago, he asked me to take a look at it to see whether or not it might be worth trying to do something with, I read it and realized how valuable it was. But it's really like almost any of those objects that is always there, but we never notice.
0: Wang Shen Zhang, whose first name means document or literature in Chinese, is head of archives and special collections at the Olin Library at Rollins College.
3: That's uh, really back to, to uh, five years ago, 2004. thousand I uh, uh, host a summer internship for a Rollins student. Her name is Lisa Strotsky. So, one of the projects for her, I work with her, is uh, to conduct uh, inventory of our special collections. Uh, so, we'll go through our uh, vault. Uh, I noted this uh, manuscript. Uh, and so, I, I see it's uh, handwritten. So, I did uh, some quick search OCLC. And uh, find out that uh, there's no other records, so the, so I know that this is never been published. And it's searched by the person, and there's no other work by kandit So, so that's probably this the one and the first and only literary work he ever written. So I. That uh, bring those to attention of Saki. Uh, a couple of years later, Saki and I we, we went to China. So one, one of for the trip. So I chatted with him. So brought that to his attention. He being a literary expert. Uh, so we feel that we probably stay on something that uh, significant. In
0: 1955, Frederick W. Dow donated Condit's manuscript to Rollins College, along with other rare documents and unusual items such as a lock of Napoleon's hair. He
3: was a, a businessman. He graduated from a, a U.S. Naval Academy. After his service, he uh, went to New York and uh, added a, a mortgage reporter, a New York Blue Book, so make a good fortune. And then, but his real passion is history. So he he had uh, he his owner of one of the largest uh, private uh, library. Uh, on both New York and Florida items. Uh, He's a scholar himself, so in the 30s, he published a a book called uh, Florida Old and New, 1934. So through this process, he uh, became friends of uh, uh, A.J. Hanna, Alfred uh, J. Hanna. Hanna was a Rollins uh, graduate in 1970. And then he later on became a professor and the vice president of Rollins College. Uh, so through this process, they became friends and uh, convinced him to Rollins is the best place uh, for, for this manuscript.
0: Weng Xinjiang and Morris O'Sullivan determined that Condit's novel was written in 1855,
1: just 10 years after Florida became a state. This novel will be the 12th Florida novel, at least so far as we know. There may be a few other manuscripts hiding in other archives somewhere. But our fictional tradition starts in 1801 with Chateaubriand's Atala. Kind of curious that a Frenchman publishes the first Florida novel in Paris. And then there was a series of novels that mostly focus on adventure, romance, intrigue, set among the Huguenots and the Spanish and the French um, focusing on pirates and adventures and lots about the Native Americans of Florida. In addition to being one of the first Florida
0: novels ever written, A Trip to Florida for Health and Sport is historically significant for its accurate depiction of everyday life in Florida prior to the Civil War. Morris O'Sullivan.
1: Probably the most significant element of the book is that it's the first novel that I would call a domestic novel about Florida. All of the other novels are adventure novels. And even though there's a good deal of adventure in this, it's the small adventure of daily hunting, fishing trips, visits, the kind of thing that people do on holiday, on vacation. Earlier novels are about the great pirates and the great battles that occurred in Florida. Um, James Fenimore Cooper's Jack Tear, for example, is about the Mexican-American War and about a, a contemporary pirate trying to sell arms to the Mexicans and then kidnap a beautiful young maiden and flee to Mexico subjects that try and deal with a very large scope. This is a fairly subdued novel about a young man, 17-year-old George Morton, who comes to Florida suffering from ill health and psychological problems and emotional problems because of his father's death. And he recovers by entering into nature. While Cyrus
0: Parker's Condit's work has been rediscovered, we still know very little about who he
1: was. He was apparently 25 years old when he visited Florida. At the end of that year, he got married, had two children, and then died at 31. He was a New Jersey man, came from an old established family. There was obviously a lot of private money in the family, And so far as the records indicate, he did nothing much else except live in New Jersey, write the novel. We don't even have any records of his actual visit. But it must have been about 1855, both because he makes an allusion to Brock House, the largest hotel in the area. It had just been built at the end of 1854, And he also makes some vague allusions to Indian problems. And the Third Seminole War started at the end of 1855, but there's no real sense of battles or of real issues between the settlers and the Indians. In fact, Native Americans, like African Americans, are largely absent from the book, even though There are a number of people who are probably slaves who are presented as servants, given their names, given the dialect that he uses for them. But except for one slave that he describes, Old Tom, they're just part of the background for the stories.
0: A trip to Florida for health and sport, the lost 1855 novel of Cyrus Parkhurst Condit, is a coming-of-age story largely based around hunting and fishing in
1: north-central Florida. He travels, he visits a um, lumber camp, he goes to talk with a survivor of the Indian Wars, a man who had been in the Indian Wars, who shows him his um, trophies from the battles. He goes out to farms, he goes to religious ceremonies, he spends time at a wedding, he spends time at parties – He learns how to build a fence. He talks a good deal about distinctively Floridian culture, like the free-range cattle, how they're milked, how they're distracted, how cattle were loaded on schooners, because Florida was such an important site for shipping cattle to the rest of the country and also to Cuba.
0: When Condit's handwritten manuscript was uncovered, it was clear that it would benefit from some careful editing. Maurice O'Sullivan.
1: Wen Chen and I spent a lot of time trying to figure out exactly how to present this. And at first we were thinking about presenting it as it was, even though it is in fairly rough form. It reads a lot like anyone's first draft of a novel. We finally decided that to focus on the story, keeping Parker's own words, but editing them to avoid a lot of the repetition Um, to avoid the problems with some of his formality in language would strengthen the book quite a bit. So what we decided to do was to sit down with it, actually go through it sentence by sentence, tighten it as much as possible. The only thing that we actually changed stylistically was to add some transitions.
0: Wang Zhang says that the first steps toward making Condit's manuscript publishable were to scan the
3: handwritten work and then transcribe it. We uh, recruit a couple of student assistants to help us. That's a great advantage working in academic institutions. You have uh, eager students that are willing to help you. So we uh, did a um, couple of things. Uh, first, we scanned the manuscript. so we have uh, online uh, electronic version, so that's the way we can preserve it. Uh, second, uh, we have uh, English student assistant uh, uh, English major. so help us transcribe um, uh, the manuscript. Uh, after we got those two pieces of work done, so we have pretty good idea what this manuscript is about, and then uh, move uh, forward uh, from there.
0: Marjorie Kinnan Rawlings' novel The Yearling is one of the most loved Florida books ever written. In The Yearling, a teenage boy learns to hunt, listens to hunting stories, visits Silver Glen Springs and other north-central Florida towns, builds a fence, and takes a fawn as a pet. Condit's A Trip to Florida for Health and Sport was written more than 80 years before
1: The Yearling, and the plot similarities are striking. I think you're right about the striking similarities in the two books. There is, of course, a very outside chance that A.J. Hanna, who was a good friend of Rowling's and a good friend of Frederick Dow's, may have read the manuscript, and some of those points might have been communicated to Rowling's. I suspect, however, that the similarity really has to do with the fact that life in Florida in the 1850s was pretty simple, and even in the 1930s was pretty simple, and there weren't that many options that people had. If someone wanted a pet, a fawn looked to most kids like a smart idea for a pet, certainly far more attractive than most of the other creatures that were available. Building fences, since that was part of the whole settling process, would have been essential. And people spent their lives hunting and fishing. So most of what happened was probably the average everyday life of folks until World War II in central Florida, until the enormous growth of Florida began changing our lives entirely.
0: A Trip to Florida for Health and Sport, the lost 1855 novel of Cyrus Parkhurst Condit, is published by the Florida Historical Society Press. An introduction and afterward by Morris O'Sullivan and Wenxian Zhang provide historical and literary context. To purchase the book, go to myfloridahistory.org and click on Books and Gifts. This is Florida Frontiers, the weekly radio magazine of the Florida Historical Society. I'm Ben Broatmarkle. Visit us on the web at myfloridahistory.org. Every winter was traditionally oyster season along the Indian River. Janie Gould speaks with someone who remembers when Florida oysters were plentiful.
4: Oysters from the Indian River used to be the mainstay of local diets. When Edward Summerlin settled in St. Lucie in 1887, he grew pineapples and he looked to the river for fish, green turtles, and oysters. Polly Summerlin Moore is his granddaughter.
2: Through the years, our family has always gotten oysters. Usually it's a little after Christmas when the oysters really get good, what they call fat. In the summer, they say they're poor. A lot of them get a little milky liquid in them instead the nice clear liquid like good oysters have. So they have a season when they go for oysters and they all look forward to it and I do too.
4: When Polly was growing up her father Ben Summerlin often took her and her brother out on the river to get oysters.
2: Sometime it was cold weather and of course he put us in the water and he stayed on the boat to do what they call cull the oysters. We would put the oysters up there and then he would knock off all of the extra shell and just keep the better oysters. When you knock it off into the river that leaves it for creating more oysters the shells do
4: did you have a particular place where you went
2: at that time you could go anywhere away from civilization which was right along the shore here where i remember going most was up on the uh, northwest coast of the river and then over in the cuds, there were oyster bars over there and it was very easy to get them except in cold weather he liked big oysters, and it seems that there were more big oysters in deep water, so my brother and I would be ducking down to pick up these oysters we'd find with our feet and getting wet all the way with our head under the water. In the cold water, and It wasn't very pleasant, right. <laughs> but it was worth it. Oh, it sure was. They were so good. I really miss that. There are only a few places that you can get oysters in the river. A lot of the places are closed for oysters.
4: When your father was oystering, Was this for the family mainly, or did he sell them and ship them? No, he
2: didn't sell them at all. He was very fast opening oysters. He opened them for special people that he liked and uh, relatives. We ate a lot of oysters. We ate them fried and raw and scalloped and (laughs) any way you could fix an oyster. I never got tired of oysters.
4: Did you have a favorite way of preparing it?
2: No, not really. Any oyster was good.
4: Were there any tricks to culling the oysters or collecting them, any tricks of the trade that you learned from him?
2: No, not that I learned. I didn't know how to open an oyster. That was smart. I'd have cut my hand, probably. For a long time, they knocked off the flatter end of the oyster. They beat it off the back of the knife or something. I don't remember what they used, and then opened the oyster from that end. And then someone came along and showed them how to open it from the back, from the, um, the hinge. Oh, that was so much quicker because they just put the knife in and s- turned it and it opened right up.
4: What's the most oysters you remember your dad bringing in?
2: Probably three bushels, something in that order.
4: And he'd get that many in how long, a morning? Yeah,
2: maybe t- a couple hours. We also went uh, mullet fishing with him. He threw the cast net. He was very good at the cast net. A lot of times he fished with two nets, one that he was throwing and one that he put in the boat for us to get the fish out of. And now he sold the mullet. So they had a smokehouse and they smoked oysters, they smoked uh turtle meat. I hate to say it, they smoked sea cow when I was little. Manatees at that time during the Depression would feed all of St. Lucie. So everybody was down on the dock to get their roast or their piece of manatee so they'd have something to eat. Do
4: you remember that? I sure do. I remember when they would have a tub full of manatee meat. It was the way we lived. That's the way it was. Polly Summerlin Moore lives in St. Lucie Village.
0: Janie Gould from WQCS prepared that report. This is Florida Frontiers. Today, 20 Major League Baseball teams make Florida home for spring training, which has become a major tourist
5: draw. Bill Dudley looks at the history of baseball in Florida. The story of baseball spring training in Florida and elsewhere begins not in the 1920s or 30s, but much earlier, according to University of Florida historian Jack Davis. The
6: Chicago White Stockings were one of the first teams under the leadership of Cap Anson in Chicago, many of their uh, ballplayers uh, during the off season, their favorite activity was drinking. And so they would be ill-prepared for the baseball season come summertime. And so Cap Anson decided, well, we need to start early uh, before the season starts and work off these beer bellies.
5: Soon, other teams began barnstorming visits to various southern states. And in March 1888, the Washington Capitals arrived in Jacksonville. Kevin McCarthy is author of the books Baseball in Florida and Babe Ruth in Florida.
7: And when they went to Jacksonville, they could not find any hotel that would take them because the hotel managers thought baseball players were pretty disreputable.
5: The Capitals finally found a small place on the outskirts of Jacksonville. For a dollar a day, the hotel
7: manager put up the ball players, but the rules were that the players We're not supposed to mix with the ordinary hotel clientele, Mm -hmm. and we're not supposed to
5: talk about their profession. Among the players was a second-string catcher named Connie Mack, grandfather of the former senator, who would soon manage his own team, the Philadelphia Athletics.
7: He liked the conditions in North Florida so much, he brought the team back down to Florida for many, many years. So in the early 1900s, there were teams like the Athletics that chose Jacksonville for spring training, and the Cincinnati Reds, and the Boston Braves, and even the Brooklyn Dodgers.
5: But Florida spring training really took off through the efforts of one man, Al Lang, a laundry owner in Pittsburgh who had moved to St. Petersburg in 1911 on his doctor's advice. His doctor gave him six months
6: to live. He was 40 years old, and he was a baseball fan. And when he moved to St. Pete, he, he immediately recognized the potential for spring training. And it was not a common part of Major League Baseball at that time. A few teams did uh, go south to train, but not necessarily to Florida. They went to places like Hot Springs, Arkansas, to Charleston, South Carolina. But Al Lang was well-connected in baseball circles, and he tried to convince the Pittsburgh Pirates uh, to come to St. Petersburg in the spring.
7: The manager of the Pirates, when he got the letter from Al Lang, said, St. Petersburg, that's just a dot on the map. I can't even find it. Other teams rebuffed Lang.
6: Then he started working on the St. Louis Browns, and he convinced uh, Branch Rickey to bring the Browns to St. Petersburg in, in 1914. And in fact, St. Petersburg built a ballpark for him right on Coffee Pot Bayou. The day of the opening game, the city declared a half holiday even to let the kids out of school.
5: On February 27, 1914, 4,000 enthusiastic fans saw the Chicago Cubs who had been training in Tampa beat the Browns 3 to 2. Lang went on to recruit the Philadelphia Phillies, who won the pennant in 1915, the Boston Braves, the Cardinals, and in 1925 the Yankees, who made St. Pete their home away from home until 1961.
6: But early on, there were a number of Florida cities or towns that were competing for major league teams, and Al Lang was responsible for bringing teams not just simply to St. Petersburg, but to to many other Florida cities. In fact, by 1929, just on the eve of the Great Depression, ten teams, major league teams, were training consistently in
7: in Florida cities. And they needed to be near each other, so that you needed five, ten-plus teams close by. Otherwise, the commuting got to be too much
5: hassle. And by the end of the 1920s, smaller towns like Lakeland, Bradenton, Tarpon Springs, Leesburg, even Avon Park had realized the benefits to be gained from hosting not only a major league ball team, but the fans who followed them to Florida.
6: At one point, Bradenton had a train that ran direct from Milwaukee because the Braves trained in Bradenton and the train would bring down their fans every
5: year. For the past 60 years, Florida has dominated the business of spring training. Four years ago, a study done by the Florida Sports Foundation estimated the economic effect of the big league teams training in the state resulted in nearly $500 million in spending and over 5,000 jobs. Quite a change from the experiences of 1888.
6: Lots of northern transplants complain that in Florida we have no visible signs of changing seasons. And so when spring rolls around, we know it's arrived by when the, the baseball teams have come in town.
5: As for baseball booster Al Lang, the man who had been given six months to live, went on to serve two terms as mayor of St. Petersburg. He died in 1960, aged 89. I'm Bill Dudley. With funding from the Florida Department of State Division of Cultural Affairs, this report was produced by the Florida Humanities Council.
0: You've been listening to Florida Frontiers, the weekly radio magazine of the Florida Historical Society. Join us again next week, and until then, visit us on the web at myfloridahistory.org.